Welcome everyone to the latest edition of SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT. In lieu of our global conferences, which have obviously been put on hold uh, by the pandemic, we're hosting these SALT Talks, which are a series of digital interviews with what we think are the leading thinkers, creators, and innovators in the world across finance, technology, and public policy. Um, today, we are very pleased to welcome Steve Case to SALT Talks. Steve, as many of you know, was a co-founder and the chief executive officer of AOL. And today he is the chairman and CEO of Revolution, a Washington DC based venture capital firm uh, that is invested across a variety of sectors. And Steve has talked about a lot of interesting themes, including the third wave of the internet, the rise of the rest, uh, themes that are being accelerated by what we're seeing today uh, with the pandemic. So we're very excited to have Steve here today, he came to our SALT conference last year and had a, a riveting panel with Mark Cuban that was moderated by Kara Swisher uh, that you can find on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, but I'd like to kick it over to Anthony Scaramucci, the chairman and uh, CEO of SALT, uh, as well as the founder and managing partner of Skybridge uh, to host the interview with Steve Case. Take it away, guys. Steve, thanks for coming on. Welcome to SALT Talks. This would have been the uh the evening, uh, Tuesday evening cocktail party at SALT. So uh, unfortunately, we're not there now, but hopefully we'll get back there next year. But I, I would love to have you start out with your personal backstory. I think uh, a lot of people, frankly, the newer generation, uh, think they could benefit from sort of the curves that uh, came about in your career, how you got AOL started, how you transitioned eventually into revolution where you are now. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. I've watched some of the SALT talks and you're doing a great job and a great service bringing out people to talk about topics. In terms of my own backstory, I was born and raised in Hawaii, which is a little unusual. Both my parents were born and raised there. Actually, when I was born, it wasn't even a state. It became a state on my first birthday uh, and grew up there and actually went to high school with then Barry Obama, who became President Obama, which is kind of an interesting, it's a small world kind of story. I went to, then went to college in Massachusetts, graduated there. Ended up working for some big companies for a little while, Procter & Gamble in, in Cincinnati, a division of Pepsi, Coke, Pizza Hut in Wichita, Kansas, uh, and then moved to the Washington, D.C. area to join a startup uh, that was doing some early online things, and that was a failure, but luckily, two of the people I met there, and I ended up starting AOL in 1985. Back then, it's amazing thinking about how we're all working from home with you know Zoom calls and living in a more connected world. Uh, when we started, only 3% of people were online and they were only online an average of one hour a week. Uh, now, of course, everybody's connected and connected ubiquitously. So we've come a long way from those early days of just trying to sell the idea of a connected world, the idea of the internet to now basically because of this, uh, this crisis, uh, we're now living a much more uh, online life. So tell, tell me about the, who, who were the founders of AOL? Jim Kimsey was one of the founders, yeah. right? I remember Jim Kimsey brought the finance kind of perspective. Uh, Mark Serif brought the technology perspective, and I sure. brought more of the, the marketing perspective. So we were the three co-founders. It was actually a struggle to get started because back then, and as I said, 1985, most people didn't really believe that people wanted to get connected. They thought it was kind of a nerdy hobbyist market, never going to be a mass market. We really struggled. We raised about a million dollars to get going. Uh, in our first uh, seven years before we went public, we raised a total over those seven years of $10 million. And then we went public in 1992. The first internet company to go public, we raised $10 million in our IPO. And the value of the company that day was $70 million. Nobody really cared about this idea. Of course, seven, eight years later, everybody went, got online uh, 
and our market value went from 70 million to 160 billion dollars. It was actually the best performing stock of the of, uh, of the 90s. So it was the first decade was slow and kind of a slog. It was really hard to get going, really hard to get people to believe. Uh, but then finally, things uh, really started accelerating in the late 90s. But 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 Steve, talk about it because really for our generation, I I still have an AOL account, and for our generation, that was the real sign of the future for all of us. You know, when I got that floppy disk or that CD and I put it in my computer and, and got myself online, what was your marketing idea to make it mainstream? Because you had competitors, you had Prodigy, yeah. which was started by Sears Roebuck, and you had others, IBM was in there with Sears. What, 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 what caused that breakout? How were you able to chip into the market and make people realize that they needed and wanted that product? A mix of things. I think our team was really passionate about trying to create a service for everyday people, consumers. Some of our competitors, like you mentioned, you know, Prodigy was more focused on shopping because of Sears and IBM were partners. CompuServe, a division of H&R Block, was more focused on information. Some of the big banks, Citibank, and was focused on banking. And everybody had a particular view of the future, kind of based on the rearview mirror of the, of the business they were already in. We looked at it with fresh eyes that we really are going to make this a mass market. We need really to make, make it easy to use, useful, fun, affordable. Uh, and our bet from the very earliest days was on what we called electronic community. But now we think of it as social media. It was really for us, the killer app was people, connecting people. And always over half our usage was instant messaging, chat rooms, message boards, ways to connect people. Of course, that's what we're now all doing in this, in this crisis. We're connecting online through a variety of technologies, this one being Zoom, but there are obviously many others. That, that was always our belief that we'd really be able to kind of break through if we had the easier to use, more useful, more fun, more affordable service, and we really focused on connecting people, uh, and that really drove our, our, our success. And, and by the late 90s, about half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through AOL, so it really was the way most people you know, got online. Your 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 bandwidth back then. Do you remember the bandwidth? You remember the uh, well. We were pretty operating? slow. We started with three hundred baht modems and twelve hundred twenty four hundred. Nobody knows that technology. But the bottom line is, uh, even ten years into it, it would take an hour to download a single song. So it was pretty. Uh, and you certainly couldn't do you know video like we're we're doing now. So it was it was pretty rudimentary. But even then, you could see there was a certain magic to the idea. Of, and some of you may remember also the screeching modem sound when you actually got connected. Uh, but uh, once you did get connected, you're exposed to you know, people and ideas and connected to content and commerce in ways that you had never experienced before. And there was something magic about it, even those early days when it was relatively so and, and also still relatively uh, expensive. Well, if you remember that screeching sound, Stephen, it, it means you have an AARP card, so let's go uh, easy I on our- I do have an AARP uh, card, but also right, well, screeching me, well, sound. Me too. Some, some, thought the, some thought the screeching sound was annoying. For me, it was cha-ching, cha-ching. I love that dial-up <laughs> modem. So, so let's talk about where we are now, though. And uh, by the way, I'm a room raider. I'm looking at your room. It looks fantastic. You've got Thank all you, the right motif in the room. <laughs> you can tell I'm up in the attic. My wife stuffed me up here because you can see the eaves here. Hopefully she'll let me out of this thing when the crisis is over. But behind you is the third wave. And uh, the book is exceptional. And so I recommend that people who haven't read the book to pick it up and read it. Because yeah, you wrote it a couple of years ago now, but you're really on point in terms of where we're going and how we're getting there. And so for people who haven't read the book, give us a quick synopsis, if you will, and, and tell us about uh, what you're thinking now. 
Well, first of all, it goes back to your first question. When I was in college, I remember reading a book, this is the late 1970s, by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave. And I, I was mesmerized by it. He was talking about the first wave being the agricultural revolution, then the second wave, the industrial revolution. He was predicting, now this was four decades ago, the technology revolution, the digital revolution, the internet revolution. So that's actually one of the things that inspired me to kind of pursue that path from my earliest uh, days right out of, of college. So when I decided to write a book a few years ago, I deliberately called the third wave. I, I had the chance to chat with him over the years and, and pay homage to him because he really was inspirational for me. The way I was framing it was the three waves of the internet. So the first wave was getting America online. It goes back to what we said before. When we started, no, essentially nobody was connected by the, by the year 2000. Essentially everybody was connected. And there was a lot of things around building that, that, that early days of the internet and really getting everybody online. Once everybody was online, all the infrastructure was built, all the modems were built, all the servers were built, and all the on-ramps were there. Uh, then the focus became apps on top of the internet. So Facebook, Google, et cetera. The, the second wave has really been about software writing on top of the internet. And obviously there are huge successes that have come out of that. The third wave, which is now just starting to take off and I think this crisis will accelerate it, is when the internet really meets everyday life and starts disrupting some of the most significant aspects of our lives and most significant sectors of our economy, healthcare, education, food and agriculture, smart cities, things like that. That's really gonna be the focus of this, of this next 20 years or so. And what led me to write the book is I realized that the playbook for entrepreneurs in the first wave was quite different than the playbook in the second wave and the third wave is gonna be more like the first wave. And there's a couple of things in particular about this touch on briefly. The first wave was only possible because of partnerships. We couldn't have done it alone. We had 300 partners that together, you know, helped create the, you know, the success of, of AOL. Partnerships weren't really very important in the second wave. Facebook, Google didn't really need partners. They just needed a cool app that spread virally and suddenly they were in business. In the third wave, you really wanna disrupt healthcare, you're gonna to have to partner with healthcare institutions. So that's one aspect. Policy is also another aspect. When we got started, it's hard to believe, particularly for some of your younger viewers, but it was actually illegal in 1985 for consumers or businesses to connect to the internet. It was still restricted to government agencies DARPA, and educational yeah. institutions. Uh, DARPA funded it and it was still restricted. So we had to do a lot of things around policy to commercialize the internet, figure out what the right policy should be for e-commerce, a whole slew of things around policy and regulatory issues were front and center, breaking up the phone company, which unleashed competition. A ton of things had to happen. The second way, policy wasn't that important. You know, these companies, again, could start up relatively quickly uh, and scale relatively quickly, didn't really have to deal with the policy. In the third wave, again, healthcare, food, you know, a lot of things we were talking about. Policy, regulations are going to become important again. There's a reason why we have regulations about drug safety and, and, and things like that. And the final one we call the, the, the P's, you know, partnership policy. The third is perseverance. As I mentioned, that first wave was a slog. It took us a decade before finally we had some, some traction. You did see in the second waves and, and a lot of overnight successes, truly overnight successes, dorm room startups that a year or two later were global phenomenons. That's not gonna happen in the third wave. It's gonna be back to perseverance. Some of the most successful companies in the third wave will be built in these third wave sectors, but it's gonna require the partnerships which take time to form. It's going to require engaging on policy, which can be frustrating, but it's going to be very important to be successful in this third wave. So, yeah, and you're touching on these broad trends. So, 
that the 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 investments that you think are going to be offering the greatest upside or where in this third wave that would be healthcare healthcare is one in, one in particular yeah we've made a number of investments in in uh, healthcare I, I started about 15 years ago an investment firm called revolution we have three parts revolution growth the later stage growth investments revolution ventures more of a series a kind of investment focus and also a seed fund called rise of the rest focused on investing at early stages in in, in cities all around the the country, but you know, in the, in the revolution growth case, we've invested in a couple of healthcare companies that are, are really showing great promise. One is called Tempest, based in uh, in Chicago, that's using big data, machine uh, learning, to basically do a better job of diagnosing things like cancer. Right now, if you go to MD Anderson, one of the top uh, cancer hospitals in the in the country, 25% of the time they reverse the first opinion. 25% of the time that your first doctor was wrong. That's a data analysis problem. And so Tempest is trying to basically use data to create much more customized, personalized therapies based on a much more thoughtful and precise scientific uh, diagnosis of what you're dealing with. They're, they're now extending that into other areas. Another company we back called Talkspace has really seen enormous growth in the last few months because they're focused on mental health delivered digitally. Instead of having to go to somebody's office to, to deal with a, a mental health professional, they're able to do that online and, and you know, through texting and video chats and, and, and things like that. So, you know, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a sad part of this crisis. A lot of people are struggling with, with mental health issues, but we have a broad mental health problem in this country. It's only getting worse and we do not have enough people uh, to, to satisfy that. We need to use digital technologies to, to innovate in, in sectors like that. So healthcare is an example. We also think there's a lot of opportunity in, in the food space. How do you create healthier options? So we back a company called Revolution Foods providing healthier school lunches, back to a company called Sweetgreen, focused on fast casual, and, and they've done some amazing things during this crisis in terms of redeploying some of their resources to first frontline hospital workers, uh, and also figuring out ways to accelerate some of the plans they had around delivery and, and uh, you know, expanding their menu to include dinner and other, other kinds of things. So we've invested in, in lots of different companies and lots of different sectors, but they tend to have this third wave dynamic where we're Policy does usually matter. Partnerships do really matter. And place usually matters. It goes back to this rise of the rest. We, we recognize Silicon Valley as an awesome place. It will continue to be an awesome place. New York City and Boston are also great uh, uh, beacons of, of innovation where there's a lot more entrepreneurial activity happening. There's also great entrepreneurs all across the country doing great things, but there's not as much attention paid to them. There's not enough, as much capital focused on them. Believe it or not, last year, 75% of venture capital in this country went to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts, 75%. Wow. So the other 47 states fight over 25%. Some states like Virginia, where I am, or Michigan, or Ohio, Pennsylvania, they each got less than 1% last year. California alone got 50%. And wow. Silicon Valley is great, but it's not that great. And so how well, do you make sure the entrepreneurs in these other cities have access to the venture capital they need to start and scale their businesses. And that also ties in more broadly in, in terms of society because these startups are the big job creators. It's not the big companies, it's the small companies, some of which will end up being the big companies. So if we're not backing startups everywhere, we're not creating jobs everywhere, we're gonna have an even greater divide in our, in our country. So for us, it's both an investment thesis, there's an arbitrage here, valuations are lower, classic kind of supply and demand. There's also a broader, impact aspect of this in terms of trying to level the playing field so everybody everywhere really does have a shot at the American dream and every community 
as the opportunity to grow jobs as opposed to just watch jobs disappear. Well, I, I you know, and you've done an amazing job. We were talking before we 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 opened up the line to our uh, viewers and delegates about DraftKings. Where, where was DraftKings located? Was that in California? Draft, DraftKings actually was in Boston. So there are sometimes Boston. in Boston, New York, other cities where we'll invest in. Most of our investments are are in other parts of the country, but there there are some exceptions. DraftKings is an amazing story. A great entrepreneur, Jason Robbins, started initially focused on fantasy. As has expanded the, you know, the vision of the company to include you know, betting. Now that a number of states have, have legalized that. And the most amazing thing over the last uh, you know, month that I've seen is this company, DraftKings, basically went public with a th complicated three-way merger and a SPAC and now it's trading. I think it's the current oh, market well, value. Well, FanDuel like is dollars. part of DraftKings now, right? What's that? Is FanDuel. No, is FanDuel, FanDuel is, a, is a competitor. They oh, were acquired by another company. But, but DraftKings has really emerged as the leader in that space and the fact that anybody's going public right now given the you know the, the, the situation the market and a company focused on sports goes public even though most <laughs> sports football basketball etc are not being played really is an amazing testament to the you know the, the the great entrepreneur that jason robbins is you're also invested in something called convene yep. tell us a little bit about that what is convene Super interesting company that focuses on the future of work and particularly how you design workspaces. WeWork was focused on basically shared co-working space and obviously got a lot of attention, raised a lot of capital. You know, SoftBank reported yesterday that they'd marked down the valuation by 90 something percent. So they obviously have a, a, a challenge. The strategy of Convene was not to compete with the landlords, but to partner with them and figure out new ways to help them think about space. And that's accelerating, obviously, in, in this world where we're now working from home. At some point, we'll start returning to work. But even when we're back in the office, there'll be more of a hybrid where some people in the office, some people will be remote. There might also be some kind of third places kind of that people decide to congregate for a special meetings and things like that. So Convene is really trying to imagine how work gets done in the future, how offices get, get bigger in the future, and they partner with the major landlords and also major you know, companies, or major tenants, to really imagine what that should look like and, and help build out and then manage it. They think of running offices more like hotel companies think of managing hospitality. It's not just something that, to, to rent and then have somebody who may not have the expertise to, to operate, try to operate it on the side. They really believe it's a, and, I, and we obviously believe as well, which is why we in, invested, it's a specialized skill and over time, more and more people are going to rely on companies like Convene to, to reconceive their office space and manage it for them. Well, you know, and, and, and obviously COVID-19, this crisis is accelerating those situations. And so you, you've been one of the great, uh, you know, trend predictors and prognosticators. So lay out for us what your vision is sort of in the post-COVID economy, the return to normalization but the recognition that something has changed in our culture, you know, a lot like the way 9-11 changed the way we go through airport security, this is going to change us. Not saying we're not going to go back to normal and have a good economy, but talk to us a little bit about where you see those trends going now. Are they accelerated? Are they different? And how so? I think most of them are accelerating. Some of the things we talked about early, early about healthcare, we've always believed that healthcare needed to be reimagined. It needed to be you know, better outcomes with greater convenience at lower cost. And we're starting to see an acceleration, particularly in areas like telehealth, which we're showing good momentum over the last 10 years. But just in the last 10 weeks, more has happened than happened in the previous 10 years. And now telehealth has become more 
uh, more mainstream. That's an example of something that's been bubbling for a while. It's, it's one sixth of our economy. It's obviously hugely important. Just wasn't working the way it should. We've now seen that that tipping point, if you will, and a great acceleration of that. We also think we're seeing that tipping point in the rise of the rest. We, as people have decided to at least temporarily work from some other place, some of those people are realizing maybe they can get their work done. And maybe over time, there'll be more of a distributed workforce. There's some companies like WordPress, over a thousand employees, entirely remote. They don't have a, a, a headquarters. That's probably an extreme case. I think most people will see the value in having that shared space, a headquarters, if you will, but surely there'll be more kind of remote operations. That will lead to more opportunity for people to decide they could live anywhere they want to live. They might choose to live in San Francisco. They might choose to live in, in New York City. But if they want to live somewhere else, perhaps in the middle of the country, they're going to be more able to do that now because of this, uh, this uh, kind of shake the snow globe moment we're, we're having right now. So when it all settles out, a number of these third wave industries, I think, are going to be restructured. There's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs not just to focus on reopening and rebuilding, but really reimagining what, what the, their sector should look like five, 10, 15 years from now, what their company should pivot to do because of what's happening here and some of the consumer trends that are gonna accelerate as a result of this, some of the technology trends that are gonna accelerate because of this, and also some of the trends around uh, things like Rise of the Rest where I think there'll be a boomerang of talent. Something like 95% of people in Silicon Valley are from some other place. They went there because that was the land of opportunity. That's where the money is. Like Willie Sutton, the bank robber said, yeah, you know, he went to the banks because that's where the money is. People go to Silicon Valley because that's where the money is. Uh, over time, if we get more venture capital backing, more entrepreneurs in more places, you know, that we will see a leveling of, of that opportunity gap that currently exists that will give people more flexibility. So next time they're graduating from one of these great universities in the middle of the country, instead of feeling like they have to go to one of the coasts, maybe they stay where they are. Some of the people that did decide to go to the coast, maybe now's the time they decide to, you know, to come home and, and, and have a different kind of a, a, a approach. I, I think that has the opportunity to really create a, a new, uh, more geographically dispersed, more inclusive innovation economy that could help knit the country together. So it's not just a few people in a few places doing really well and a lot of people feeling more and more left behind. Uh, we, we need to make sure we're creating opportunity for everybody, jobs for everybody. Entrepreneurs do that, as I mentioned earlier. And this was news to me until about 10 years ago, I was asked to work on some, some policy initiatives, including uh, by then President Obama, that essentially all the jobs created in this country are from new businesses, startups. Small businesses and aggregate are hugely important. We're seeing that right now because we're trying to make sure restaurants, other small businesses can stay alive through this crisis. Big business, Fortune 500 companies, of course, they're hugely important. But those don't ac account for net job growth. There are some companies growing like Amazon, but some companies like GE declining. As a sector, those big companies do not add net new jobs. The net new jobs are from the startups. So if we're only backing via venture capital entrepreneurs in a few places, not everywhere. We shouldn't be surprised that there are a lot of people, a lot of communities that are feeling kind of left out, left behind, and, and worry about the future instead of being optimistic about the future. So it's, this is a great moment, I think, for our country to create a more inclusive innovation economy, back entrepreneurs everywhere. No, no, no question. And you, you've also been a strong proponent of immigration reform. And so could you just tell us a little bit how that weaves into these trends? Because you're you know, if you get that boomerang effect, you're, you're certainly going to need talent to be drawn upon from the rest of the world to come into this economy to help lift more and more people. 
Yeah, I, I understand immigration is complicated and emotional. People have strong views on it, but I just look at the data. And right now, it's pretty compelling that 40% of our Fortune 500 companies were started by immigrants or, 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 or children of immigrants, including some of the most successful companies, Apple, Google, uh, et cetera. So we have part of the reason we are such an innovation, innovative uh, entrepreneurial country is we've been a, a, a magnet for talent all around the world since our inception. It is worth remembering, kind of take a step back and remembering that 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was just an idea. And we led the way in that agricultural revolution and led the way in the industrial revolution. More recently, obviously, led the way in the technology revolution. And it was entrepreneurs leading the way. And those entrepreneurs were coming from all around the, the world. So if we want the United States to remain the most innovative entrepreneurial nation, we need to continue to be a magnet for talent and not just look at immigration as a problem to solve, but as an opportunity to seize. And that's why kind of figuring out the right approach around immigration to make sure we are continuing to be that magnet is going to be uh, hugely important in the next third wave. Well, I mean, a corollary to that, you know, Sal Khan from Khan Academy was on yesterday with us, and we were talking about inverting the skills pyramid. Uh, and, and so what are your thoughts on that? And what kind of policy initiatives, or have you thought about policy initiatives that could help us expand that footprint of skills, which obviously would help us with the income inequality in the country as well. There's a number of things that need to happen. And Sal has been obviously a huge pioneer over the last decade in using digital technologies, using the internet to level the playing field in terms of education. So his work is incredibly important. And I, was, I, I did listen to his talk yesterday you did with him and was delighted to hear that three times more traffic now on the Khan Academy site than there was before the crisis. That's an example. Obviously there's terrible aspects of this crisis. A lot of people die. A lot of people are having, you know, really suffering, including having this massive unemployment rate. But there are some glimmers of hope that we should kind of focus on and try to build on as we as we come out of it. In terms of education, I'm not an expert in it, but I do know we need to make sure we're teaching our kids the things that machines can't do. And that a lot of the skills around creativity, communication, things like that are going to become increasingly important as we move into this uh, into this next sector. And we also need to do a much better job of, of reskilling. A couple of companies we backed through our Rise of the Rest Fund, one in Baltimore called Catalyte, another one in, in Indianapolis called you know, Kenzie Academy, are doing a great job of reimagining how you tap in, and unleash human potential. What Catalyte is doing with AI is basically identifying people who nobody ever sat them down and said, you know, you seem like you would be pretty good at coding. Instead, they were on some other uh, career track, but they go through this initial test and basically get an aptitude around this. And if they pass that test, they then put in this training program where they end up often getting double or sometimes even triple the salary they were getting before. Sometimes it's like truck drivers who, who are suddenly moving into the, into the coding world. So that's just one of many examples, not just about coding, there's many aspects of this third wave that need skills and we need to make sure we're building the skills for tomorrow, for the industries of the future, and we're not just looking at the rearview mirror and doing kind of more, more of what we've done in the past. To totally. Uh, John, John, we have some uh, questions from our, uh, our viewers out there, so I'm going to kick it over to John, who's uh, he's been compiling some of those questions. Go ahead, John Dorsey. Yes, Steve, you mentioned your role as an advisor to the Obama administration. You were on his Council for Jobs and Competitiveness. Uh, you're based in Washington, D.C., so you're you're in and around uh, you know, the political ecosystem. What, from a government perspective, can the government do to incentivize entrepreneurship around the country? 
and help to incubate your concept of the rise of the rest and, and create the right incentives for that, uh, that rise to take place? A number of things. I, I think there were some things the Obama administration uh, did that were helpful, including passing the JOBS Act, which was done in a very bipartisan way. It was called the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act. It, it changed, updated laws that hadn't changed in 1933, so the Securities Act of 1933, to make it easier for young companies to raise capital, make it easier for companies to go you know, public, confidential filings, things like that. So that was a success. The Trump administration had a success with the Opportunity Zones, which also had broad bipartisan support identifying parts of the community where the poverty levels are, are the highest and creating incentives for more capital to flow into those, into companies, as well as reimagining neighborhoods, real estate projects, things like that. It's still early there, but I think that holds great promise. There are a number of other things that have been proposed. Senator Klobuchar just a few weeks ago uh, introduced legislation that would incent more capital to go to these rising cities, what we call these rise of the rest cities. I think that would be uh, you know, constructive. And even today, though, the White House hosted a, a, a session on this reskilling, going back to the earlier question. So how do you make sure you are moving forward, trying to do it in a, in a bipartisan way and trying to do things that really do unleash capital, which I do think is a critical ingredient. This idea I mentioned before of 75% of venture capital going to just three states makes no sense at all. So how do you create at a local level, perhaps at a, a state level, incentives around angel investments and other, you know, how do you stand up more regional venture firms? What are the incentives to, you know, to do that? We need to get more capital backing more of these people in more of these uh, places. And there is a role for policy. Ultimately, it comes down to investors taking the, the risk, entrepreneurs kind of having a better idea and deciding to run with it, put everything on the line. Obviously, that's critically important. Uh, but the you know, politics policy does matter. It does set the table. It does set the, the, the ground rules and more focus on startups is critically important. I, I, I encourage the, particularly the governors who often spend a lot of time when they think about economic development, trying to get big companies to move their headquarters or to open a factory. Obviously, there's a huge focus around Amazon second headquarters, for example. It'd be way better for them to spend the same amount of time and the same amount of money, not focusing on getting the big companies to move, but the little companies to start, some of which will be the big companies of, of tomorrow. Amazon 25 years ago, we had like four employees and was a crazy little idea of selling books online. So how do you back the Amazons of, the, of tomorrow, not try to just lure Amazon to open up a, you know, an office? When, when you think about the world today, and let's take the uh, Stephen case at 2425, we've got a lot of young people on the, on the, uh, viewing us today. Uh, where would you go directionally? It's interesting, you went to Procter & Gamble, I went to Goldman. That was our years, you know. I mean, if you wanted to finance Goldman, if you wanted marketing, it was Procter Gamble. But the 25-year-old today is probably moving into a smaller company than the ones that you and I chose leaving school. And so, what would your advice be to those people? Well, everybody's a little different. We have five kids, and we all, all they have different interests and passions and, and skills and desires and so forth. So it's not like a simplistic answer. Uh, but I do think people need to recognize the world is, is changing and not focus on what exists today, but imagine what might be happening tomorrow. Like Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player, people said he was great because he didn't focus on where the puck was. He focused on where the puck was going. He just got there just a split second before other people got there. So if somebody is spending the time to think about where things are going, again, it depends on what, what's, you know, whether you're interested in, in medicine or teaching or, or 
a startup or what have you, you know, we, how is it going to change and, and have a mental model in terms of at least a shot? Well, of course you won't get it all right, but at least you'll have a sense of what's possible. That's what was helpful to me in those early days. And, and interestingly, I, I went to Procter & Gamble, not actually because I wanted to, even though it was a great company, I wanted to start a company to help create the internet. But when I was graduating in 1980 at the age of 21, the startup economy didn't exist. Venture capitalists were not backing 21-year-olds, and nobody believed in the idea of the internet. So the reason right. I went to Procter & Gamble was to get some skills around marketing, and it was a terrific company, uh, and then eventually figured out a way to get into you know, starting my own company when I was 25, 26, something like, uh, something like that. So I think you really have to figure out what part of the world you want to have it put a little dent in uh, and then figure out what do you have the right skill set to, to, to do that? If not, how can you develop that you know, skill set? And also recognize that it's a team sport. You know, you, you can't do these things on your own. That's, I've learned the hard way. The things I've been successful I'm involved in had a great team. The things I were unsuccessful did not have a great team. So how do you assemble the right team, get them focused in the right way? And going back to one of that first, one of the principles I talked about in the third wave, that's now a principle I think in this next third wave, perseverance. You got to stick with it. You know, often revolutions happen in evolutionary ways and you really need to take the, you know, the, the long view and play the long game. When, when you think about formal education today, you know, and uh, private universities and the competition in terms of the proliferation of universities and the rising prices, Steve, I mean, they're going up three, 4% a year in tuition. And now a lot of them, you know, can't finish the semester this semester or they're done with the semester online they may have to do online uh semester uh next year what's your thought on that have you thought anything about how that's going to change as a result of COVID-19 or just generationally change from the more traditional settings that you and I experience as kids well, it's going to change a lot. And there are, there are some folks who have been on the lead on this. Arizona State University you know, is, is an example. It really started investing in this 10 years ago as, as a really uh, inclusive approach to try to get people who have untapped potential, given an opportunity, do it at a more affordable cost. And often is the case, do a lot of things online. Online is not perfect. We're all finding that out. But for a lot of people, the ability to do things online is a way to do it more conveniently and more affordably than if you have, you know, you're on campus. But I think the campus is going to change a lot uh, this fall. I've heard different things about different colleges and universities and, and uh, in graduate school. I saw that Harvard's medical school is not going to even uh, open physically in, in the fall. There's, there's other that was told Stanford Business School is not going to open at all, online or offline. I'm not sure that's true, but that's what I, what I heard. I've also heard that about 25, maybe 30 percent of, of freshmen in, in college that have been admitted likely are going to defer it a year and take a gap year because they don't want to miss out on what is one of the great things about that on-campus on immersive sure. experience, which is the interaction with other people. It's not just what you learn, it's also who you get to you know, spend time with. Uh, so I think overall, this sector is, is really gonna be challenged. I think that's healthy because they needed to be challenged. They need to figure out ways to, to deliver better learning outcomes with more convenience and, and lower costs. And that's gonna be a big trend. I've been involved in a little of this. I now chair the Smithsonian Institution which is known for its museum, 19 museums, about a dozen uh, research operations, national zoo, things like that. But there's a real effort underway led by Lonnie Bunch, the new head of the Smithsonian, to create a virtual Smithsonian. Not everybody can get on a plane and fly to Washington, D.C., spend time on the National Mall to visit air and space and, 
natural history and some of these other terrific museums. How do you create an, an immersive virtual experience and allow people to access some of that idea, some of that intellectual property, if you will, from any home and any classroom? So the fact that the museums now are shut down is terrible, but the Smithsonian is using that time to reimagine what the Smithsonian sure. should be in the future, and the, the digital component is going to be much more important. So everybody needs to understand uh, that the world has changed. We saw, saw in the last you know, 10, 20 years a slow evolution, whether it be technologies around distance learning or technologies around telehealth, some of the things we've, we've talked about. This is a kind of a shake the snow globe moment. When it all settles back, it's going to be different than it was. And some of these trends, which we're slowly building, are going to really start accelerating. My, I'm optimistic that will result in a better healthcare system, a better uh, educational system, a better you know, food system, some of the things that we've talked about and some of the things we're investing in it at the revolution. Well, I mean, it's also a good segue because you're talking about the Smithsonian. You're doing a lot of work uh, with your wife, Jean. You've given the giving pledge. You know, you're going to give away half of your net worth uh, uh, to society, which is a wonderful thing that you guys are doing. And just talk to us a little bit about your charitable giving, how you're thinking about it, uh, because I know you're a great investor. That's also a form of investment. You know, it's so, so, sort of social investing. So we're, we're, what are your thoughts there? Well, we started the Case Foundation over 20 years ago, and my wife, Jean, has run it the entire time. And over those 20 years, you know, we've invested a number of things. We had an early day, we had a very significant digital divide initiative. We're quite concerned as technology, the internet was starting to take hold, that a lot of kids were being left behind. So that was a significant initiative. We did things around clean water, you know, cancer research, a variety of different areas. Uh, right now, our focus is on things like the Smithsonian for me. Jean, my wife, is the chair of the National Geographic Society. Uh, she's doing amazing work, the number one brand in terms of social media, Instagram, things like that, has an amazing partnership with Disney uh, for the National Geographic Channel and, and some of their other uh, digital you know, businesses. So for me, the Smithsonian, for Gene, the uh, National Geographic are two priorities, but we still, with the Case Foundation, also we call the Case Impact Network, are looking at how do we level the playing field in terms of opportunity. A lot of things we've talked about uh, on, this, on this call. How do we do that from a, an entrepreneurship standpoint? How do we do that from a opportunity standpoint? How do we work with the groups like Business Roundtable and others that are trying to shift business from just focusing on profit, that sort of Milton Friedman view of a half century ago, to recognizing profit really creates a sustainability for businesses that allows them to invest and, and grow and hire people. But these companies also need to have more impact and, and more purpose. And that, that's going to be a big trend in the next 10 or 20 years. And that's one of the areas that we're focused on helping to, helping to catalyze in any way we can. Yeah, hopefully there will be that cultural shift where it, it is certainly about profit, but also if you think about the social well-being of your employees and, and things like that, it could actually enhance and increase profit. Uh, John has another question for you from the uh, audience. Go ahead, John. Yeah, we, we had a SALT talk last Friday with Chamath Palihapitiya, who has been very critical, even though he's based in California, he's been very critical, not just of the culture in Silicon Valley, but of the system of capital formation, about how it sets a lot of entrepreneurs up to fail and doesn't serve uh, the entrepreneurial community very well. How do you feel about a capital formation, how it be, could be improved from a venture capital perspective? I've known Chamath a long time. He actually worked at AOL out here in the DC area before he moved to California and ended up being a, a key executive at Facebook and then obviously quite successfully has pivoted into the in, in investment world. I celebrate Silicon Valley. There are amazing things about Silicon Valley in terms of this 
sense of possibility. You know, people hear an idea and imagine how big it can be. A lot of people in a lot of parts of the country hear an idea and focus on the risk factors, why it might fail, why, you know, as opposed to why it might succeed. There's this network density of, of a collision of, of people and ideas. Uh, there's a lot of capital. So there's a lot to celebrate. But I do think sometimes Silicon Valley gets a little ahead of itself. I do think in these sectors, these third wave sectors, knowing something about you know healthcare, for example, I think is going to be important. Domain expertise is going to be important. There are a lot of people still in Silicon Valley who think that if you know nothing about an industry, you can bring fresh insights. And there are many examples where that has been the, the case. But in this third wave, I think you need to marry those fresh insights with some perspective knowledge and credibility if you're going to form partnerships in these in these in these third wave sectors so recognizing that it's not just about the software it's not just about the apps these are system level changes and ultimately system changes happen as people change and you have to bring a lot of people along uh, that's something that i think we can make a lot of progress on and getting more of the silicon valley venture capitalists to not just invest in silicon valley but invest in these rising cities these rise of the rest cities i think would be hugely important as well we're starting to see some momentum on that front. Hopefully this crisis won't slow that momentum. Uh, hopefully it will accelerate that momentum. But I think Silicon Valley needs to not just focus on itself, but focus more on the country at large, engage more with policymakers because there are a lot of complicated policy issues in this third wave. And it is frustrating, as Anthony knows, dealing with government kind of issues. Sometimes it's the bureaucrats can slow you down and, 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 and that can be a source of frustration. I get that. But if we're really going to lead as a country in this third wave, we're going to need to have constructive engagement between the innovators, the disruptive groups, and the, and the policymakers and figure out, as we did in those early days of the internet, commercializing the internet, creating the rules of the road around e-commerce, things like that, we need to do the same in, in healthcare, smart cities, food and agriculture, these system level changes that are going to be essential in, in this third wave. So I celebrate Silicon Valley. I just want to make create more opportunity for more people in more places, get more of that venture capital, backing more entrepreneurs in more places, create more of that fearlessness, anything is possible mentality in the middle of the country, not just in a few places on the, on the coast. I think that will result in a, in a stronger innovation economy, a more inclusive innovation economy, and also create more, more opportunity, more jobs for, for people everywhere. Uh, Steve, you know, you, you mentioned Avin Toffler. Uh, do you remember John Naisbitt's book, Megatrends? Yeah. Do you remember oh, that sure. book as well? Yeah. So before we let you go, because uh, we try to uh, promise a hard out in 45 minutes, I want you to be John. I want you to channel your John Naisbitt for a second and give us a few of the megatrends that you see over the next three, five, and 10 years. Well, I think it ties in exactly with the themes that we talked about. I think a lot of sectors of, of the economy, a lot of arguably the most important aspect of our lives, how we still help, stay healthy, how our kids learn, what we eat, how we move around, how we work are going to be rethought, reimagined. And that's going to create enormous opportunity for entrepreneurs who are willing to play offense when a lot of big companies are shifted into playing uh, defense. So it, 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 the revolution we saw in the early days of the Internet, that first wave, was around communications technology. The second wave around media you know, technology, obviously been a lot of disruption there. I think the third wave is gonna really impact critical aspects of our lives, some of the, the most important sectors of, of the economy. So it's not about any one technology, it's about systems level change in these, in these sectors. And I also really do believe that the playing field will level, that the, the rest will rise and we will indeed have a more inclusive innovation economy. So I was gonna pick, pick two, I'd say, Watch the third wave as that wave accelerates. 
and watch the rise of the rest as a lot of these cities that a lot of people have given up on start rising and surprise us all in the next 10 or 20 years when some of the most iconic breakthrough companies in these important third wave sectors are going to be from places in the middle of the country. Well, listen, we, uh, it was a fabulous conversation. We really appreciate it. We covered all the bases uh, today. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, your success as it unfolds. And uh, just move your head a little, Steve, because I want to show the book here one more time. There you go. See that? that the good, third wave. Thank yeah, you, right Anthony, there. The third that, wave. Help. I, I, very, I very strongly recommend everybody that you get out and buy that book, read that book, listen to it on uh, Audible or an audio tape. Uh, and I think you'll really enjoy that. And with that, Steve, thank you. Uh, a great talk. Have a great evening. Stay safe and healthy out there, everybody. And we'll be back with Salt Talks again uh, later in the week and next week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. It was fun. Appreciate it. it. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you.